The gospel reading comes to us from the gospel according to Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. But what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? But what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. May be seated. Grace and peace to you this morning from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So right after Christy and I moved out to Pittsburgh, she started interviewing for jobs out there. This would have been the summer of 2014. Uh, and eventually what happened is she got a job doing marketing for American Eagle Outfitters. It's the clothing company, which kind of explains why I tend to dress like a teenager. It's a 40% family discount, right? Uh, anyway, when she first started there, the people there, they would ask her these very typical get-to-know-you type questions. The thing is, it always followed a pretty predictable pattern. Uh, so it would start with things like, where did you move here from? We just moved from Scottsdale, and so uh, she would say Scottsdale, or maybe she'd say Phoenix, because people don't really know where Scottsdale is. Uh, but either way, Scottsdale, Phoenix is what she would say. And then they would automatically respond, why did you move here? So because Pittsburgh's not exactly like a destination city, right? Like, yeah. No. Um, and so she would say, my husband got a job here. And then almost automatically the response was, oh yeah, what does he do? She would say, kind of nonchalantly, he's a pastor at the church. And literally every single time the response would be, oh. And it's like, what do you mean, oh? What is sitting behind that? Oh, so the other thing that would happen, this is after she'd been there a couple months, uh, but sometimes we get together with some of her coworkers. You see, for the most part, almost everyone who works in marketing at American Eagle is a 20 to 30 something year old woman. Why that is, it's just, it's fashionable, but it just is what it is. And yeah, what that would mean is whenever we got together, it would be a bunch of yellow, relatively young married couples. And especially if we were hanging out at someone's house, what would often happen is the guys, the husbands, we would branch off by ourselves. Either be a game on, we'd go off to the TV. And the thing is, whenever we did this, you kind of got the feeling, I got the feeling, we love this. Guys, 
had a really good time together, we're having a meal, we're drinking a beer, we're watching a game, all of this is good, it's fun and lighthearted. And yet inevitably what would happen is someone would, somehow we'd start talking about work and someone would go, what do you do for work, Garrett? And I'd say, ah, pastor at a church? And in that moment, I kid you not, everything would change. So you're like, religious? <laughs> and all of a sudden, everyone would kind of sit up a little bit straighter. Posture got a bit more upright. Language got a lot cleaner. And if you know anything about Steelers fans, clean language is not their gift. In fact, I remember this one guy in particular, he had kind of found out, he'd be cussing at the TV throughout the game, and yet the second I said pastor, it was like he was reborn. <laughs> Did you see that call? Rats. <laughs> and so the thing is, on the way home, uh, we would talk about this, right? You could not notice it, and so we'd be driving home, we'd be debriefing the night, and to be honest, we couldn't figure it out. Like, what is going on? You see, here's what happened that kind of clued us in to what was going on. Eventually, Christy became really close friends with one of her coworkers, and she just kind of filled us in on everything. And in particular, what she told us is, first of all, uh, when Christy told her she was married to a pastor, the first thought in her mind was like, oh my goodness, he must be at least 55. <laughs> maybe 60. Maybe older. Maybe that sounds weird to us. I don't know. Uh, but it makes sense out there, is because a lot of the pastors in Pittsburgh are a tad bit older than I am. By tad, I mean like 30 to 40 years. And so when she says she's married to a pastor, they are not thinking Matt Chandler, they are thinking John MacArthur. Should yeah. YouTube, those two guys. Anyway, and so then the other thing this friend told us, a lot of them grew up in Catholic schools, and their perception of the priests in particular is they were incredibly uptight and super judgmental. The thing is, I don't know if that's actually true. I have no way of telling. Uh, you see, what I do know is that's how they figured out this. And so here's the thing about this, about bringing this whole situation up. Uh, it's that words, certain words, certain words have certain connotations. Maybe a better way to put that for our purposes today. Certain titles conjure up certain images in our heads. And you see, what's incredibly common is for our perception of a position to totally shape our view of the person who's in it. And yet, if we really want to know something, it's got to be the opposite. It's got to be the person, him or herself, who defines for us our perception of the position. If you go to our passage, the way that it begins, we just read it. The way that it begins is Christ asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Uh, and as we heard, what they say is they go, some people say John the Baptist, other people say you're Elijah, so other people think you're just one of the prophets. In other words, people who are not following Jesus tend to think of him as a religious leader. Which is probably the same now as it was back then. I mean, if you don't actually follow Jesus, maybe you've just kind of heard about him, typically the view is he's some sort of spiritual guru, moral teacher, good religious leader. And so that's what the disciples tell him. The thing is just to kind of point something else. I'm make one, but I want to make it. Uh, he doesn't seem super concerned. In 
In other words, he doesn't want his disciples to freak out about it. Oh my goodness, people don't know who you are. No. Relax. Just relax. You see, because at least for now, we'll get to that later. You see, for at least for now, the bigger concern Jesus has for us is the follow-up question, which is, who do you say that he is? Meaning, if you're someone who actually wants to follow Jesus, you're drawn to the life that he has for you. You consider yourself a Christian, and then the big question is, what do you believe about him? Who is he to you? You see, on behalf of all the disciples, including us, Peter answers. He says, you are the Christ. Just to kind of pause there, the word Christ, it's this Greek word Christos, and Christos just means anointed. In particular, what it's meant to be is anointed with God's spirit. And you go back to the Old Testament, in Hebrew, but the Hebrew word for this anointed one is Mashiach. We translate it as Messiah. The thing is, whatever you call it, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, all of it is getting at the same thing. It's getting at this person who's going to come, he's going to be anointed with the Spirit of God, and he's going to bring salvation to his people. And so you see, when Peter says that Jesus is the Christ, that's what he means. He's essentially saying, you are my savior, is what he's saying. And so just to put it out there, did he get it right? Absolutely. So for Peter in the passage, he said the right words. He got the right word. He identified the right time. This is most definitely his savior. You know, what happens next? Jesus begins to explain what kind of savior that he is. And the second that he does that, Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. He's like, whoa, what just happened? Like, how can you go from in one instance claiming Jesus is your savior to then in the next instance rebuking him? You see, the reason for that is certain words just have certain connotations. Better way to put it, certain titles conjure up certain images. Christ, Messiah, my Savior. All those titles create a particular perception in our minds. And the thing is, it is incredibly common for our perception of the position to determine our view of the person who is in. And if we really want to know Christ, we really want to know Christ, it's got to be the opposite. Meaning it's got to be who he actually is. It's got to be the things that he actually says, that he actually does, that define what it means for him to be our Savior. Uh, so the question that I want to put out to this one, we're going to spend some time this one, is what kind of Savior is he? Now that's sort of the question that looms over this passage. Uh, you see, Peter has one very particular view of what salvation is going to look like. Whereas Jesus presents a very different view of what salvation is going to look like. And I guess I just want us to think of what I want us to think about is what is our view? Uh, so it's going to seem kind of random, but about a year and a half before I came here, uh, the church has started the call process for an associate pastor. 
Uh, so I remember on the call committee, we were getting a bunch of different applications. I think we got like seven or eight on call committee now. Eleven? So we had seven or eight there. Uh, anyway, you see this one, out of all the applications, this one in particular really stood out. Uh, the reason for that is, is this one applicant, and I'm not going to name his name, if only to not breach confidentiality, and to be honest, I don't even remember his name. But, uh, what I do remember is when you looked at his resume, it was incredibly concerning. And that was because in the last five years, he had been at six different churches. Uh, which, come on, that's kind of a red flag. Uh, it's not really good for churches to have pastors just coming and going, which is precisely what this guy was doing. And so immediately we were just kind of put off. Yeah, here's the thing about it. Uh, he wrote me a cover letter, super long cover letter, attached it to his resume. It's probably four pages long. And if you would just read through it, it turns out he was incredible. There was actually nothing wrong with him, according to the cover letter. In fact, he had to be the best candidate out there that we could possibly interview. It just turns out that he's had horrible luck. Uh, and maybe more specifically, when it comes down to it, every time that he has had to leave a church, it's always been someone else's fault. Or it was just something that happened and that, you know, it didn't work out. Uh, but he, no, he was great. So what do you think we did with that? Oh, we called him, of course. Associate pastor, come on! No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it was a hard no for us. And you see, I think on our end, one thing we said amongst ourselves as a call committee, is if you just look at all the situations that he's been if you just think about it, he's been in all these different situations, uh, none of which he's been totally satisfied. Each of which he's wanted to get out of at a certain point. And yet, all of which have had just one thing in common. And what is it? him. And so even though he couldn't see this, so I imagine not, uh, what actually needed to be fixed? Was it his circumstances? Or was it himself? Now, so here's the thing about this. I don't say any of this to shame a brother. It's not my intent. Uh, so the whole reason I'm bringing this up, I believe this guy is us. I'll leave you out. I believe this guy is me, if only in a much more obvious way. Uh, so if you just think about it, of all the situations you have been in in your life, you've been in a lot of different situations, of all those situations that you've been in, none of which you've been totally satisfied with. Many of which you have wanted to leave at a particular point. And yet all of which have had just one thing in common. What is it? It's you. For me, it's me. So the question is, what is it that really needs to be fixed in your life? Is it your circumstances? Or is it yourself? You see, it's just kind of a biblical theme that the primary problem that we have in this life is not outside of us. It's not our circumstances. It's not some other person. 
It's not that we don't have enough money, or the right job, or the right house, or that we don't live in the right state. Like, why do you guys keep leaving stuff? Like, uh, but no, the primary problem we have, and the one thing from which we need the most saving is ourselves. In other words, it's not primarily what's outside of us that needs to change, but rather what's inside of us. Our heart, that is. That's what needs to be fixed. Our mind. The things that we think about, the way that we handle things, our attitude toward life, what we cling to and live for and aim at, that's what needs to be healed. And so if we go back to our passage, what is so off-putting to Peter is that is not what he wants. In fact, he has a very specific plan in terms of what is going to constitute his quote-unquote salvation. And in particular, any so-called savior is just going to make Peter's life life a heck of a lot easier. And yet, is that what Jesus does for us? No. No, Jesus' plan of salvation is one in which the people and the things around you may not change much at all. And yet, the fundamental promise is you will. You will. In particular, I'm kind of lay out what that change will be. In particular, maybe for once in your life, you will have peace. Not be so restless. Maybe even more important than that, for once in your life, you will be free. And the salvation that Jesus came to bring, old habits will be broken, past mistakes will be redeemed, everything in your life will have a purpose, you yourself will have passion. That is what he came to bring. So after he kind of lays that out in the passage, the question for the crowd is no longer, what kind of savior is he? No, now it's, what kind of savior do you want? Do you really want a savior who will give you a new heart? Or do you just want a savior who will get you a new house? You see, because Jesus is one of those. He is not the other. So after he kind of delineates that, we transition to the last part of the passage, after he delineates what kind of savior he is, uh, what he says to the crowd is, if anyone would come after me, is what he says, meaning if you want me to be your savior, you want this kind of salvation in particular, if anyone wants to come after me, let him do three things. Let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. We'll get back to that in a second. Uh, I've shared a little bit about this before. And I'll be honest, I think when I share it, it can kind of sound like, a sob story? Uh, like, Will Kenny's going to get up and start playing the violin? <laughs> it's not why I share this, okay? Um, it's not meant to be a sob story. I just want us to think clearly about how do we handle certain things that are difficult? Uh, so just about three years ago, Casey and I were in this situation that we really wanted to change. Uh, a number of reasons for that. One is we, were, uh, one is we, we have been trying to get pregnant for a couple of years, and it just wasn't happening. That was incredibly frustrating for us. We've shared that. I've shared that with you guys before. Uh, on top of that, we, we really wanted to move back closer to the family. And sometimes we felt kind of lonely living out in Pittsburgh. Uh, pretty much everyone there has multiple generations of family there, which is fine. It's actually great. 
And yet sometimes we felt a bit like outsiders looking in on other people's lives. Also, just to be totally frank, uh, the church that we were at had dynamics. Dynamics. Uh, and just to be clear, every church has that. We have dynamics. Uh, there is no perfect church, right? Uh, but one thing in particular uh, that I just... It was tough. Uh, it was being a Saturday service. Uh, which maybe doesn't sound like a big deal. Like, what's the big deal about a Saturday service, right? Uh, my wife works Monday through Friday. And so what that meant for us is we never had a day off together. I'll be honest, we hated that. Truth be told, we actually like each other. <laughs> and so I tried a bunch of different times to change the worship schedule. Uh, I would bring it to the council. It was the kind of church that was pretty much controlled by the council. And so I would bring it to them. I would try to make my case. I even thought that it would be better for the church itself, to be honest. And so what do you think? What do you think their response was? No change. And so, put it all together, we just felt kind of stuck. I started looking for other calls nonstop. Nothing was a good fit. I bombed a couple of interviews, which is great when it's your only way out. Right? And so we were in this position where we really wanted our life to be different. And yet for years on end, Nothing ever changed. The thing is, I'm just going to guess. You have been in situations like that before. Where things are really slow to change. And in fact, sometimes it feels like maybe they're never going to change. You see, the question I want to put out there is, what do you do in the midst of that? So I think what's typical, and it's definitely the case for me, is you start engaging in what a lot of psychologists refer to as escapist behaviors. You've heard that term before, escapist behaviors. Uh, that would be things like having a drink or two every single night. That's an escapist behavior. You're trying to avoid the life that you're living. You develop some sort of social media habit. You're just always going on there over and over again. That's escapist behavior. You're avoiding your life. You browse silly websites, you watch a lot of TV, you buy a bunch of stuff that you don't really need. You just do anything you can to kind of escape the life, to escape the fact that your life is not what you want it to be. All of that is escapist behavior. And the thing is, if we find ourselves falling into that, what that means is we are Peter in this passage. Peter. See, because he wants an escape. It's all he wants. And so even though for us we might have the right concept in our intellectually of salvation up in our head, especially after hearing the first part of the sermon, you got that. But then convictionally down in our heart, what we still believe would really save us is some sort of external change. And since we can't seem to literally get out of the situation that we're in, then escapist behaviors are the next best, best option. See, here's the thing about these behaviors. Maybe one of the main ways you can tell that you're doing it, aside from just looking for the behaviors themselves, 
but look for the fruit that they bear. Um, and two things that will happen if you engage in, in scabious behaviors. Um, first of all, monitor your prayer life. It's going to get weak. And then second, consider your heart. Your love is going to grow cold. And so if you find that your prayers are perfunctory right now, and your love is lukewarm, then it is possible that you're seeking a kind of salvation other than that which Jesus came to bring. And so what is the call of Christ in the midst of bearing a cross that we can't get rid of? I'm read it to you. Read it. I just read it a little bit ago. It's verse 34 already. I'm going to read it again, and then I'm going to fill it out a little bit. Uh, so verse 34 is going to transition to this call. Uh, he says, if anyone would come after me, uh, let him deny himself, first of all. Meaning, deny yourself those escapes. Secondly, let him take up his cross, meaning let him embrace the suffering. Not escape, embrace. And then finally, let him follow me, is what he says. Meaning, handle your cross in the same way that he handled it. That's what it means to follow. The thing is, if you think about Christ at his cross, what did he do? Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed. Not perfunctorily, but passionately. Uh, in particular, he prayed that even though, yes, he wanted out, right? prayed that he wanted out, which, by the way, it is fine if you pray that you want out. But you see, what he wanted even more than that was for the will of God to be done. And so his prayer became not weaker, but deeper. And then second of all, on the cross, his love grew not colder, but greater. In other words, instead of pulling back into personal protection mode, which is our typical attack, uh, he leaned into love for other people who matter the cause. So that's how he handled his cross, and then he says, follow me. And he, instead of turning to those other things, pray. Turn to him. Pray in the midst of your pain. And instead of letting your heart harden because of what this life has thrown at you, love people. Let your suffering soften. And what you'll find, if I can borrow a phrase from 2 Corinthians, is even though your outer man might be wasting away, your inner man will be renewed day by day. Or in the words of today's passage, even though in one sense you're losing your life for Christ and the gospel, in a much deeper and more lasting sense, you're saving your life. By becoming one with your Savior. And so if you want that kind of salvation, that kind, that is the call he has issued over your life. So let me kind of wrap this up. Uh, I think it's worth mentioning, even though uh, Peter heard all this, right? He's sitting in the crowd, he's hearing all of this, uh, he couldn't really hear it. 
you've heard that phrase. I heard it, but I couldn't hear it. And for a long time, for Peter, it just fell on deaf ears. And so, when it came to the cross of Christ, the cross of Christ, as Christ prayed, what did Peter do? He fell asleep. And then as Christ was crucified, what did Peter do? He denied knowing. And so even though the call was to pick up his cross and follow Christ, Peter couldn't do it. His prayers were still perfunctory. His love was still lukewarm, all because his heart was still set on some sort of escape. And yet, if I could just point out one thing, even then, even then, even when Peter is at his worst, even when Peter is still kind of weak in the faith and muddling through, what was the heart of Christ towards Peter? What was Christ doing as Peter fell asleep? He was praying. He said that. Who was he praying for? He was praying for Peter. And what was Christ doing as Peter denied him? He was dying. But who was he dying for? He was dying for Peter. What I'm trying to get at is even when your spirit is asleep, your heart is kind of hard and you're just muddling through this thing we call faith, he still loves you. He is still preparing new graces for you. He is still working on your behalf that maybe someday you will turn to him and be healed. And you see, that is the kind of Savior he is. The thing is, it wasn't until Peter saw his need for that grace that he came to love and live for a Savior who was, in fact, gracious. So my prayer this morning is that you and I would see our need. I think it would be pretty lame if we got to the end of our life, and since we were always thinking about how to gain the world and get out of trials, we have forfeited the healing of our own soul. So with that, let's pray as our worship team comes forward. God in heaven, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. Uh, that he's come to be the kind of savior that we probably wouldn't pick for ourselves. That he's come to heal us in ways that we can't heal ourselves, set us free in ways that we can never achieve. Lord God, when we are in our right minds, we know that is what we need. And yet you know all too well that we are not often in our right minds. And so Father, fix us, is what we pray. Not our circumstances, fix our thoughts, our hearts. Lord God, change what it is that we are chasing after so that it would be Jesus and his grace that we are pursuing. We pray this in his name and all God's people said, Amen.